0: Hey, all you casters of pods. Yes, welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 280, which... It's just weird. I keep thinking about it as the numbers kind of keep racking up or whatever else. I'm like, you know, I don't know what point a person can say, I'm a podcaster. I think if you've done like five or 10, I don't know if you could say that. I think once you've crossed the threshold of like a 100, I think you're a podcaster. If you've crossed the threshold of 250, you might be a glutton for punishment, but we just keep going, right? And uh, just for all of you who listen, I just want to say thank you. Um... Of all of the ways in my world that I get the opportunity to teach, uh, whether it be Sunday mornings or the podcast or classes or whatever else, this is by far to me the most important outlet because to me, this is where we're getting into the most authentic stuff of life in some ways. Uh, like Sundays are great, you know what I mean? But that's kind of like the broadest net and it's sometimes very generalized and I don't always get into the weeds of application like I try to do here or even get into the sticky, painful stuff of life like I try to do here. Uh, And so for me, this is like probably my most favorite outlet for teaching. And so thank you for all of you who decide to listen to the podcast, because it certainly means a great deal to me. So anyway, that's the first thing I want to get out of the way. Second, though, is the topic of the day. And the topic of the day for episode 280... Is the gospel, all right? And I, I, I want to get my best, like I should get like, a, like my, either get my Pentecostal on like the gospel, or get my best Southern Baptist on the gospel. Um, but whatever it is, man, we're talking about the gospel. But here's the thing about the gospel. Because I know right now some of you are like, oh, I know this one. And you're just clicking off on the podcast, right? And others are going to be like, ooh, what's he going to say about the gospel? Is he going to get the gospel right? Is he going to have all the components of the gospel? Is he going to fulfill all of the different things that are considered the gospel? Is he going to do the golden chain of Romans when it comes to the gospel? And the answer to all of that is we're going to see by the end. All right. But I'm not hitting this exactly from the perspective that some people might be assuming when you're going to talk about the gospel. I'm going to talk about the gospel as it relates to the current culture wars that are occurring within the evangelical church and how I think it's kind of in some ways doing a disservice to what I perceive the gospel to be and what the gospel is seeking to achieve. All right. So that's going to be what I'm kind of doing. And to do this, I'm going to reveal a little bit of my bias. I'm going to talk a little bit about the premise of what I'm getting at. And then we're going to kind of cycle through all of it and then see where it lands. All right. So that's kind of the goal. Now, when it comes to the gospel, uh, I want to be clear that in our current culture wars, I I, I think there are different factions within the church right now. Some are very anti-culture. They're very, uh, They're, they're far more moralistic than they are, uh, kind of grace based or gospel based. And so they're looking at the world and everything as some kind of agenda. And then the agenda, we need to vilify them. We need to go to war with them. We need to attack them. We need to burn them to the ground to protect a republic, right? And we've talked about that on the podcast. That's not a new thought, but that's one faction. Um. There's another faction that's kind of going to war with that faction saying you, as you're doing that, you're undermining the ability to actually present the gospel to disbelieving people because you're behaving so badly. They can't help but interlock Christ with Christians and our disposition. And therefore, who wants a gospel that just sounds hostile to everything and unloving to everything. It doesn't sound wooing. It just sounds like it wants to win. And so there's another faction within the church trying to address that. And then I think there's even a third faction that's kind of in between all of those where there's a sympathy to one side, but there's a frustration at the same time. And, and they're trying to figure out their way around and they're trying to figure out, yeah, you know, how can we still hold the moral things in our world, but also at the same time, bring the gospel to our world? And how do we fit in the nooks and crannies of all of that? Um, you know, there's just a lot of tensions going on within the evangelical church church. And I know for me as an evangelical pastor, it certainly has been a rough few years. And uh just this last week I was over in Spokane, uh which gave me even more reason to be sad. Uh I re- met with great friends and everything else and just like world-class people for sure, but they were all really just talking about like Matt and they're in these churches like Matt, I'm telling you this nationalism stuff over here it's just picking up steam, this kind of vilification of the world almost a sense of militancy, almost like it feels like it's on the precipice of saying, you know what, if we need to get violent to ensure the things of Christ, we need to do that, you know? And they're just like, it's really disheartening in comparison to when you read like what Jesus's marching orders are for the church versus what churches are having their pastors kind of preach and stir up and get kind of hot about or whatever else. And, you know, again, there's layers to that. Not every church is just full on high octane on that. But, you know, it's the more you get into conservative spaces politically and you're seeing the conservative politics driving the doctrine more than the doctrine of Christ driving the politics of the church and the politics of the people. So it's kind of the tail wagging the dog a little bit. And so we were talking about some of that. And all the more, I think this has implications for then the gospel, right? And so when I think about the gospel, maybe a way to kind of look at this is maybe to ponder or pose a question to you right now, which is for you, is the gospel a social gospel? Is it a moral gospel or is it a spiritual gospel? Like, when you think about what the Bible is most pushing, is it a moral gospel, a social gospel, or a spiritual gospel? That's the first question, right? Now, I'll let that kind of sit in your mind for a, a minute, and then I will go so far as to say, when it comes to which of the three that I believe is in play, it's very easy for me, all three are a part of the gospel, all three are intentions of the gospel. The gospel's designed to change society, right? So it's a social gospel. The gospel's designed to bring a vo- voice to our morality, so it's a moral gospel. And the gospel's designed to change our inner person from death to life, right? This is why I say life is better with Jesus because he comes in and he changes your life. He gives you an abundant life, a transformation of life, a newness of life, so you can take that life to others. And in that sense, it's a spiritual gospel, right? We're moving from our sin to his righteousness kind of thing. And so all three must be true. And what I'm finding is too often there is this, Either rejecting two of those and only embracing one or accepting two but rejecting one or whatever else or elevating one and kind of demoting two, something of that nature. And I would challenge that and say if we don't leave all three equally intact as having equal importance and value in the overarching thing that is the gospel, then we're not really being fair to what the gospel is fully designed to do. So you want to see it like a three-legged chair, all right, or a stool. And so if you have one leg that's too long, if you're, the gospel is mostly spiritual and that's the long leg and the social gospel and moral gospel are shorter, you're going to have a wobbly kind of thing. Uh, Same with all the others. If you're like, it's all social gospel and it's a really long leg and then the other two are shorter legs, you're going to have a wobbly kind of stool, right? So the gospel has to sit equally on all three. And I think that's what's getting sacrificed is in kind of the tribalization. We're also kind of tribalizing the gospel. And we're saying, this is mostly our gospel. And that's mostly our gospel. And then what happens there is then you start looking at the other side and they go, oh, they don't believe the gospel. They're denying the gospel. They're not emphasizing the gospel. And I'm like, well, right. If any one of those three legs is over lengthened and over shortened, of course, then for you, you're going to look at others and go, it's too short. It's too long, whatever it is. We got to figure out how to have it all balanced out. Now, as the bias goes, I'll give this. Quick little caveat, and then I'll kind of walk into this a little bit more. But for me, I clearly have a bias, and my clear bias, as I've shared on the podcast, is I fall into this post-millennial category, which means I think the world is getting better and better because of the gospel, in other words, I think the gospel is transformative of all at all sorts of layers, right? Because it changes the inner spiritual condition of a person, hence it's spiritual, it brings then a transformation of their morality and how they live, which then translates into the flourishing and benefit of of society. So it's social, it's moral, and it's spiritual. All of that's true. And when all of that isn't happening, then people aren't living out the true ramifications and effects of, of the gospel. So if we're shutting some of that down of being, as being unimportant, then we're not fulfilling the gospel mandate. We're only fulfilling part of it. And if we only care about souls getting saved, but we don't care about societies being transformed, I think that falls radically short of what Jesus was pitching, what the Old Testament was promising, what the very foundation of God's covenant to Abraham is all about, which is an eternal covenant, by the way, that he wants to transform the nations. He wants to bring flourishing to the world. He wants to renew what was lost in Eden by having a city with a garden and a river that comes out and it brings life to the world, right? So that is partly my bias here is I go, I, th- I think if the gospel isn't transforming the world as we know it, then we have, um, a short side of gospel. So that's where I would have the blame of like, it's too spiritual and it's not enough social and it's not enough moral and it really needs to be all three. Right. And they kind of flow in that order. I think it's a, it's first a spiritual gospel that becomes a moral gospel that becomes a social gospel as far as its trajectory from the individual out into the world around them. But it needs to kind of have that kind of flow and equality. All right. Right. And so why do I think all three are true? Well, when it comes to the spiritual gospel, that's probably the easiest one. Right. So when you look at at, at kind of what Jesus comes to do, he's like, man, I have I've come to reconcile humanity to God. That's a spiritual problem, right? So we were enemies of God, and he wants to make us friends of God. And that kind of gets into Romans chapter 5 that's really, really clear. This is our condition. This is his solution, right? So we were dead on our trespasses and sins. We were going our own way, doing our own thing. Again, the word sin just means to miss the mark, right? Every New Testament listener, when they would hear that word said, they go, oh, miss the mark. That was what it meant to them. You know, We've kind of turned it into a theologicalized word, sin. And then we've given it velocity, depending on the tone you use. But in the world, they're like, yeah, I've missed the mark. I've crossed the line. I do it all the time. We all do it all the time, especially if the line is perfection. We're really good at crossing lines and missing marks, right? So so that is our problem. But then Jesus offers the solution, right? And through the cross, uh, there is this thing that happens that is no one thing. It's several things all at once. And it's dealing with Satan. It's dealing with sin. It's dealing with death. It's conquering those things through what he does, right? So the work of the cross is a work that takes sin and deals with the consequence and bestows life in Christ and through Christ, right? And that then brings a spiritual transformation in the person. It's the start of a journey. It's the start of an overall process where then by which the Holy Spirit takes up residence and because the Spirit is now in us, I would call this an advantage. And I know that's a weird way to put it, but it's kind of a simple, kind of 21st century way I can put it, is that uh, all human beings bear the image of God, but now those who are you know, saved in Christ, have new life in Christ, have em- embraced the spiritual aspect of the gospel, their spirit is changed, the Holy Spirit comes in them, and they ha- now have an advantage in how to live. And the advantage then is they are given the ability to, to obey at a level they didn't have before. Uh, they are given the capacity for the spirit to produce in them his dispositions. But it seems that Paul says, provided you submit to the spirit, you walk in the spirit, you yield to the spirit. He's going to do that in you. That seems to be some kind of decision-making on our part. that says, I want the Holy spirit to do stuff in me. Because again, one of the big discouragements I've certainly seen is how little fruit of the spirit I'm seeing in the professing church sometimes and I go, well, why is that? I go, well, it's just because not because I don't think they're saved. I think they're saved. I just think it's we're, we're getting so consumed by the political banter, we're not really trying to walk in the Spirit. We're walking in the voice of whatever pundit we listen to, and it stirs up the opposite of the Holy Spirit. It stirs up angst and frustration and anger and and put outedness and you know just judgment and all you know again all of these these things that are contrary to love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. That list that is there, right? But we get this added bonus, this extra credit power of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's what the spiritual gospel then produces. But then what that is to transfer into then is then the way we live our lives is this moral element of the gospel, right? And I don't mean moral, like now you're earning your, your salvation or you're maintaining that which was first given as though you're saved by grace, but you maintain it by works. I don't believe in that. I think inadvertently some, some Christians do, they don't kind of process out what it is, but they're kind of like, yeah, you get saved by grace, but then, you know, you really are maintaining by your works or by your ethics, um, I don't think that's necessarily the way we should see it. Rather, what we're seeing is the way that the the world gets transformed is by people who the moral elements of the gospel, they begin to live that out, right? Now, when it comes to what the moral elements of the gospel, that's where it gets a little bit trickier. And this is going to be maybe where some people kind of depart from what I'm talking about here a little bit, because I think it's really easy to go, oh, so the moral elements of the gospel are the Old Testament law. And I go, I don't, think that's the case. I think the moral elements of the gospel are the New Testament law. And I think the New Testament law is where Moses went on the Mount at Sinai and comes down with the old law. Jesus goes up on a Mount and he comes with a new law. And that's why I'm always pushing the Sermon on the Mount. And by consequence, the Sermon on the Plain, because I think that is the moral code by which the New Testament authors then operate. So, you know, I, I I tend to kind of have this this mentality that sees it as like a peak, right? So Jesus is at the top of the peak. His words are really the 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 foundation by which everybody else is kind of writing off of that, right? So whether it be Jude or James or Peter or John or whomever, the writing off of the peak that is what Jesus teaches throughout the gospels. And then in particular, I think it's really honed in when it comes to be it either the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, or I'd even go into places like Matthew twenty five, where he's like, hey man, on the final exam, here's what I'm testing for, you know. Did you do these things? Because this is the real moral implications of what the gospel does. It makes you such a radically different person. You're doing things upside down and backwards from the way the world does them, which is why, again, as I keep pitching here lately, the book of Revelation is like, hey, man, the the ways of the world are the ways of Babylon or the ways of the beast or the ways of the dragon. All of that is the way business is always done in the world. It's It's divisive politics, it's force, it's aggression, it's vilification, um, it's might, it's power, it's strength, it's money. Like those are the ways the world gets business done. And yet the way of the lamb is everything else is opposite, upside down, backwards, contrary to everything else. And that is to be our morality. I want to be clear about that. The the, the forefront of our morality is all that stuff that Jesus promotes is, hey man, this is what my people do. The world does it this way. My people do it that way. See, I say that because there are a lot of disbelieving people that are moral from an Old Testament law kind of standard, right? Because again, in the Old Testament, there wasn't a whole lot of thought about the inner person. Jesus kind of brings that. he's like, now what about your heart, right? But in the Old Testament, it's just like, hey man, if you don't kill, if you don't cheat, if you don't lie, if you don't do these things, hey, you're a moral person. And there's people of other religious backgrounds that don't embrace Jesus in any way that highlight a lot of the same morality of the Old Testament. It's even why our Republic was built in many ways off of the Old Testament law because they're like, Hey man, that's palatable. That that's something you could expect as kind of a general rule of thumb, right? That people will treat other people this way. Now it doesn't always work that way, right? There's certainly immoral things in the world. There's immoral things in the church. There is those things. Um, but I would argue that the gospel's sense of morality is not the rule keeping elements of the old Testament. It's this new kingdom code of Jesus in the new Testament and highlighting those things. And so uh, for us, morality would be peacemaking. Like that's our morality. If we're not making peace, if we're stirring up strife, if we're vilifying people on the other side, we are not being moral based on the gospel. We may be being moral based on some either a an old testament model of like there was very much a blessing and cursing good guys bad guys kill them save them like all of that was in the old but in the new there's this whole different radical new idea and we're supposed to be the ones that are coming and bringing flourishing to a place that's in decay and it's our morality that is a part of how we bring flourishing to the decay right so if we're not embodying those things like we're poor in spirit and we're meek and we're mourning over the things that we see if we're just angry over sin instead of mourning over sin that's not the ethics of the kingdom that's not that's not the morality that Jesus was promoting. This is why he, he's like, hey, Amen. I, I want there to be a purity of heart. I want there to be a joy, even in the midst of persecution, because the world's gonna see you different. That's why you're salt and that's why you're light. And this is why your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Their righteousness was based on just rigid law. Jesus is going to this whole new place. He's like, you wanna know what righteousness really looks like? And then he just starts marching through. You're making up for with people that have wronged you or you have wronged. You're making sure that you are... pure in your heart, not just in your actions. You're making sure you're keeping your word. You're making sure that you are not vindictive. You're making sure that you don't retaliate. You're making sure you go the extra mile and you give twice as much as what has been asked of you or required of you. You make sure that man, you are not going down the road of judgment. You're not going down the road of thinking you're better. You're treating others. You want to be treated. You're making sure you're caring for the poor. You have a humble prayer life. You are fasting in your world. And you're fasting for the presence of God. Like all of that is in there. And that is our moral code, right? So we're leaning into those things by way of the implication of the gospel. And when we do, and this is the important part, it actually shows the world. The gospel really works, which I know is another kind of trivial way of saying it. But it's like, man, if the like the proof that the gospel really changes our inner person from being selfish to being selfless is I think the morality that we live out a selfless morality, what Jesus is getting at in his message is a selfless morality, which is why he's like, Hey man, you want to have be top dog in heaven one day, be the least in this world, right? You want to be first, be last, you know, you got to be the servant of all. And that's part of the problem. When we get into these culture wars and we start kind of vilifying the culture around us, we're not serving it. We're just condemning it. And then why would it ever want anything that we have to offer? It just wouldn't want anything we have to offer, right? I I know when I get condemned by people, I don't want what they have to offer. So why would they want what we have to offer? So this is where these things start to cycle together. So if I'm truly transformed, I have the spirit in me. I'm leaning into the spirit. He's working through me. This fruit comes out uh, in all of its beauty and density, density and complexity. And the way I then show it is in my morality, which again is not being morally superior. It's realizing how inferior I am apart, inferior I am apart from Christ. And then in that, I am approaching life humbly. I'm approaching life uh, sacrificially. I'm approaching life realizing that, hey, my life is not caught up in this life. My life is caught up in helping others and seeing them flourish, right? That's my moral co- code because that is the morality that flows out of the gospel. Because again, the gospel is doing many things. That's one of the things it does. But then it's for whom, it's social, it's for society, it's for the world, right? Like, and 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 here's the thing about that too. Um, it means it's touching all the things that make a society a society. So it's touching economics, it's touching uh, law and justice, it's touching the poor and needy, it's touching uh, the prison system, it's touching the family makeup, it's touching everything that comprises a society. And in that sense, the gospel is social and has social implication, which makes perfect sense to me When even you see like Jesus rolls in, in uh, Luke chapter four and he quotes the book of Isaiah and he's like, I've come to liberate the captives and give sight to the blind and you know, all of this. And and in there, there's this listing of things that are medical and there's things that are political in essence, because you're prisoner or a captive, you know, and then there's things that are, are kind of communal. And so in this, you got to realize that what Jesus wants of his people is to bring, bring world transformation, but not through domineering and dominion, right? This goes back to what our, our morality is, right? So if our morality is the stuff of the Sermon on the Mount and being a selfless servant to the least of these, knowing that we're seeing Jesus in every one of them, because if we don't, we've missed the whole calling. That's Matthew 25. You know, I, I, like Jesus, when did we help you when you were in prison and poor and all naked and all these things? He's like, ah, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. That again is the moral code by which we live. And that brings transformation, but that transformation again is going to be systemic. And so it means we then as Christians, based on the gospel, we need to care about all of those things. We need to care about injustice. We need to care about the marginalized. We need to care care about the poor we need to care about those who do not have the same privileges or opportunities that maybe we do and we can't turn a blind eye to that because jesus is like if you turn a blind eye to that you're turning a blind eye to me I mean, that that's to me, Matthew 25 is like one of the freakiest parts of the Bible because it's so blatant. It's like so in our face. And I say that because sometimes I'm hearing in some of these dialogues, like a shaming of the poor, a mocking of the needy, a belittling of the marginalized, or that they're just complaining. They're all victims. It's not real. I'm tired of being lectured on how all these people are missing out and it's all my fault. And we have all these things and it just misses the fact that, you know what, we can complain about that all day long, but it doesn't change the fact that Jesus said, you got to go deal with it. With that. And if you don't deal with it, you're denying me. And if you're denying me, we're going to talk about it one day when I'm separating sheep, sheep from goats. And, and I go, that's sobering. And that should be sobering. Because throughout the Old Testament in particular, you see God constantly coming to his people and saying, you keep neglecting the neglected you keep not worrying about those who are down and out and downtrodden. You're not trying to to elevate justice for all. You are saying justice for some and injustice for others. And that's fine by you because at least the justice serves you well, even if it doesn't serve others that are in need of justice. And every time God just drops the hammer. In fact, even in a story that Jesus tells he talks about a rich man and Lazarus, and then they both die, and the the man Lazarus, he's over kind of in this paradise realm, and the rich man is over in this kind of suffering realm, and a lot of times Christians read that story like, oh, what are the dynamics of heaven and hell? And I go, that story does not teach us anything about the dynamics of heaven and hell. It really doesn't, because if so, then apparently we can talk to people in hell, and they can talk to people in heaven for all eternity. It would be really kind of weird um, if that's the way it worked. But that's not what Jesus is telling the story for. What he's telling the story for is, hey, if you're well-to-do and rich and you're indifferent to the suffering of others, uh, that's why you end up in torment. You know what I mean? That, that's kind of the whole point of the story. He's like, you know, and, and in their culture, because you were rich, they assumed, well, because I'm rich, God has blessed me to be rich. And it was understood that you were the more godly because you were well off. God must've blessed you in that way. And Jesus disrupts the whole system. And it's like, yeah, actually the really godly one was the poor one that you walked by every single day, or you passed when you're in Seattle. Cause you didn't want to deal with them as you're on your way to pikes or whatever the thing might be. If we modernize it, you know, I'm just going to the courthouse. I don't want to do, deal with you poor, sad saps that are hooked on drugs over here. Um, and, and I think Jesus is like, yeah, you're walking by me every time you're walking by me, you know? And, and is that how you bring flourishing to the world? Is that how the tide rises to kind of lift all ships? And that's why I think the gospel has a social implication, because Jesus repeatedly was showing it had a social implication. He's hanging out with the riffraff to show it has a social implication. He's speaking to things of priority to show that it has a social implication. And if God's promise to Abraham Abraham is true, he's going to bless the nations, right? Or... As I'm going into this week in Psalm 22, mind-blowing when it talks about his agenda is to basically touch every family on earth. Well, that has a social gospel element as well, right? So all three must be in play, spiritual, moral, social, and to neglect any one of those, to eject any one of those, to vilify any one of those, is to, in essence, invalidate the whole thing right? That's going to be my contention. This is where we want to realize that, man, our gospel is vast and broad and diversified and it cares about the soul and it cares about the person and it cares about the world and it cares about all the ways that the world touches the person. It cares about all the ways that we are meant to touch the world as persons in Christ. And we bring that to bear on our environment. And so we have to be thinking, think, think about everything as gospel work right? Not just how do I share this message with this person and have them pray a prayer. And that's my gospel work. No, that's the start. That's the, just the very start of a race. That is the gospel. This is why the gospel of the kingdom, as like Matthew loves to call it, is about this whole thing called the kingdom. The kingdom is not just, uh, again, a positional shift from, uh, you know, like being out of Christ in Christ. And that's the kingdom. No, it's, it's a shift of, of global proportion, right? Where the individuals changed to change other individuals to change the world around them and to see God's restoration project continue to be other way underway to till, till the end of all things. That's the point of this whole thing. And I believe the more that we as Christians can embrace that full range and go, yes, that's right. This is so great. The gospel is about changing people and about me being changed so I can bring change to the world. And it touches the spiritual and it touches the moral and it touches the social. Man, that is a gospel to be excited about. And when we do that and we're excited in that way, then we will be fantastic everyday missionaries.